This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very much looking forward to this conversation with Lindsay Borgon about her book titled Tree Thieves, Crime and Survival in North America's Woods, just out in 2022 from Little Brown. Um, This is an absolutely fascinating story, as you can probably tell from the title. Um, Lindsay takes us through the underbelly, really, of the illegal timber market, focusing on um, the West Coast of North America, both both in the United States and Canada, um, helping us understand what is happening? Why do people illegally cut down trees? What do they do with it? What are the communities where this is happening? And kind of what are the more structural forces that have led us to this place? Um, And really takes us inside all of these sort of tricky and interesting conversations. So Lindsay, I'm so thrilled to welcome you to the podcast to tell us about your book. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Could you start us off by introducing yourself a bit and explaining why you decided to write this book? Sure. Yeah. So I am a writer um, and an oral historian. And um, in in 2012, I, I heard about an 800-year-old cedar tree that had been stolen off the coast of British Columbia. Um, and that's really the case that got me going um, on this whole story. So um I began looking into kind of what it takes to poach a tree. I was, I was really, um, you know, I, I didn't grow up in a, in a community with a lot of tall old growth trees. So it was really surprising to me. Um, and over the years, it just, it, you know, it became more and more complicated and turned into tree thieves. This, the, the book that came out this year. Um, and, and so, yeah, that's how I came that's how I came to the story. And um, during that time, I also uh, was very lucky. I became a National Geographic Explorer and I, I start, I, you know, was, was uh, supported by them to do field work in Peru, uh, where I looked at tree poaching uh, in that context as well. And uh, it really unfolded to me as this big global, global story that was also like deeply local for a lot of people. Hmm. 
I think we're going to get into a bunch of those things um, that you raised in the interview. But to start off with, we should probably start at the beginning. What is timber poaching? How does it work? Why do we know so little about the scale of it? Yeah, great question. Um, I mean, timber poaching is stealing trees. Uh, So, you know, it's uh, in in order to be poaching, those trees are often located on conservation land or on privately held land. Um, And it often looks like cutting down a tree in the middle of the night um, and and loading it up into a vehicle and off offloading it either to a mill or selling it as firewood um, or or, you know, maybe uh, doing artisanal crafts with it, I suppose. Um, And it happens all across, you know, all across North America, and certainly through Europe, it's actually on the increase through Europe at at the moment. Um, And yeah, it is, you know, it's often done by by small groups of people, I think, a lot of people think of illegal logging as uh, logging firms, logging companies kind of going over their allotted uh, cut block space or, or the space that they've been permitted to cut within. But also it happens just individually quite often. Uh, you know, one one or two people working here or there and taking down where I live, often old growth or ancient trees um, or yeah, I, I think in the UK that they're called ancestral trees. You know, they're really old, um, and and selling them, putting them putting them on the market because they're very old. They're quite valuable. Hmm, fascinating. Um, <laughs> and can you? I mean, I can understand the whole at night, then given to a mill, therefore chopped yeah. up into pieces gives us some idea of kind of why it's hard to understand kind of exactly where and how much this is happening. But do we have Mm. any sense of scale? In the North American context, we have some sense, although it hasn't been, the the statistics have not been updated in recent years. But so the Forest Service in the United States, their last sort of study into this found that about $100 million worth of wood is poached off of their land every year. Um, more broadly across the entire country, that that ups to one billion, and that includes from you know uh, private logging land, private just private homesteads, <laughs> uh, national park land, any sort of uh, conservation land is is under that umbrella. Um, in where I live in British Columbia, that number is about thirty million a year, um, and around the world, it's actually a one hundred and forty-seven billion dollar industry. Uh, this type of poaching, so it is a huge part of the um, the sort of underground trade in in the natural world. Uh, it happens, you know, on scales even greater than rhino poaching or elephant poaching. Um, it is it is massive. Uh, in terms of its share of the uh, of the underground uh, illegal wildlife trade. Wow, yeah, that really does put it into perspective. Mm. Um, yeah, so and it happens for, for in, yeah, it happens in all sorts of countries and reasons. Like for instance, right now, um, due to the energy crisis, Europe, you know, particularly Germany, they've they've noticed that there's an increase in firewood poaching from their forests, and so it it tends to come and go based off of like public and social need and and the state of economics and and kind of global uh, global 
factors, which is also really, you know, kind of interesting and and something we might not always think of. Mm. Well, I think one thing that you raised in your first answer um, that really came through in the book quite helpfully was that this is both a global issue, but also, as you said, an intensely local one. And Mm -hmm. that was one of, I think, one of the really helpful contributions of the book is to go deep into the localness of it. um, Because as you explored that for us and kind of took us on this journey, um, when the book then goes back into the global, you can start to extrapolate and go, ah, I wonder if some of those dynamics might be true in this other instance, right? Right. Um, And so I'd similarly like to go into kind of that intense local, uh, which is mainly in the Pacific Northwest in the book, um, and talk about these factors, right? Because even though it is a local story, economics are a huge part of it. So can you tell us about kind of the economic conditions in this part of um, the world, particularly around Mm. unemployment and what that has to do with cutting down trees? Absolutely. Um, So, you know, as with a lot of other communities around the world, um, the Pacific Northwest in the in the kind of late 20th, early 21st century was going through a deindustrialization process. Uh, So this was a logging region. Um, A lot of particularly rural areas, they were reliant on logging, you know, mills were built outside of cities, and uh, people were working within the forest and living near the forest. And uh, while there was a lot of deforestation happening and and overlogging happening at that time, it was also like the economic driver of an entire region. Um, And due to to kind of lots of sort of converging um, issues in the world of policy and and, um, kind of globalization and global trade um, and environmental activism, uh, the end of that that sort of intense period of logging work uh, happened in the 1980s and 1990s. And it really left an entire region filled with these towns and these communities that had lost their main, their main sort of uh, support, uh, you know, their main tax base, their main financial foundation, um, and also their sort of main reason for operation. And, and, you know, there's a lot of identity involved in that identity issues of, you know, people really identified with the work, and it was work that supported family life. and, And it really just kind of it didn't entirely disappear. We have logging here now, but it's nowhere near the scale that it used to be. And the way that this looks now, you know, kind of like trickled down 30 to, to 40 years later is that there are a lot of rural areas that are struggling and deep, you know, with deep poverty. Um, and so, you know, there are there are families that still are are really rooted and connected to these regions that don't don't feel that they can actually work in the place where they live and and that they've loved and that their family loved. And so <clears throat> poaching happens around a lot of those communities. When I first started doing research into this, I would be asking investigators and, and rangers, you know, like, what is the motivation for this? Who is doing it? And they very consistently would say to me, you know, we struggle with poverty here. Um, we're struggling with really high unemployment, um, you know, linked to that. Uh, a lot of folks in these regions are are faced with 
kind of addiction and misuse of drugs and alcohol. And so the motivation is really strong and also the skill set is really strong. So you have people that have access to the tools to poach a tree. Uh, they have the knowledge to know what tree is valuable and where to take it and what it could be turned into. And then the motivation, you know, like the need for, for money immediately uh, is there. So it kind of all uh, congeals into this into this region where I did a lot of my reporting. But I actually think that um, industries around the world uh, can, can probably can see the parallels there, right? Whether it's mining or or oil and gas or forestry or even fishing. I mean, the, these are kind of familiar tales within these industries. Hmm. Yeah, especially around the idea of a community that for generations has passed down the skills yep. and the tools and yeah. the local knowledge of terrain of, you know, which tree is valuable, but also how could you actually get it from the forest to the road without anyone finding out? Yeah. Um, and comes it's up also again and again as being important. Yeah. And it's linked, you know, in that way, it's often really linked to like family relationships, um, family identity. And like, you know, I was talking to poachers and they would tell me that their dad taught them how to use a chainsaw. Their uncle did. They were around this their whole life. And and so I don't think those things are, are uh, I don't think you can separate those details also from the sort of technical part of the poaching itself. Mm -hmm. It's all sort of messed up and, and interlinked together. Mm -hmm. Well, and also um, it's worth kind of bringing the other side into clear view as well, right? As you've already mentioned, poaching uh, is not, you know, there, there's a con there's a construction around that, right? Um, yep. Not cutting down every tree is not the same. If you're doing it on protected land, it then becomes mm -hmm. a crime. Um, and so there is kind of the other side to this of the conservation movement. Um, yeah. the environmental protection movement. Um, and this, obviously, as I'm sure listeners can realize, um, there's rather a lot of tension between these two groups. And I was wondering yeah. if you could tell us about a particular instance of this, the timber wars. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, you know, I, again, um, much of the book is focused in the Pacific Northwest. And like I was saying, in the 80s and 90s, when the industry was going through like real upheaval, um, that historically that has come to be known as the timber wars. Um, and so this was a time when there were changes in um, the Endangered Species Act in North America and in Canada, which uh, it classified uh, the northern spotted owl and the marbled murrelet as endangered species. And what that meant is that any logger or logging company um, or conservationist who saw a northern spotted owl on a, a plot of land that they had the rights to log, they were they were forbidden from logging there anymore. And that really meant that a lot of the work was was legally forced to stop. And a lot of people were plunged into sort of precarious work conditions, unemployment. Um, and so there was a lot of like, first of all, there was a lot of anger directed to this bird, you know, like you would see a lot of times people would have... Um, <laughs> like uh, bumper stickers that said, save a logger, eat an owl, right? Um, you know, so there was a lot of rhetoric and conjecture around that type of thing. Um, and environment, um, environmentalists had really lobbied for this 
for for that for that um, listing to happen, and so there was also anger at at the work that environmentalists were doing to protect these areas. Um, and it, it kind of erupted, you know, like a whole region was was as the name indicates at war. Um, so you had people in the forest, like chaining themselves to trees and to equipment, and then loggers retaliating by like throwing axes at them and yelling and threatening their families and threatening their lives. And um, one of the former loggers told me that his dad, who had run this sort of uh, logging company, had said that he stopped sending out any of his employees that he knew to be hotheads, you know, in quotes, because he he knew that the liability was really strong there. Um, And so that the memory of that is still very, very strong, even though a lot of the people that were working at that point are retired now, you know, maybe their kids wanted to work in the industry, but couldn't, and they hold within them the memory of that time and, and all of the kind of cruelty on both sides that was being hurled at each other. Um, Mm. And that there's still a lot of resentment that fuels a lot of anger, uh, you know, and sometimes that anger is against the federal government who runs the national park, for instance, or the federal government who runs the forest service or environmentalists who really what they were doing was right, but perhaps the way that they were communicating why it needed to be done was just really ineffective and really quite um, retrogressive in a way. So that, um, in addition, of course, to your earlier answers, really helps us understand uh, why this is not a simple solution, right? Why this is multi-generational, ongoing. Mm -hmm. There are some really clear um, tensions here, which, of course, makes um, the sort of accepted or expected task, I suppose, of the park rangers, of the government in going after crime, in this case, illegally cutting down trees, um, really hard, I imagine, politically, in addition to the obvious kind of, someone's cut down a tree, how, how the hell do you know what happened next? There, there's no blood. There's no, you know, it, it's a difficult crime, I imagine, to um, deal with as a kind of forensics exercise. Um, mm. But you detail in the book that despite these challenges, there are prosecutions that have taken place for timber theft in these yeah. communities. Um, can you maybe take us through one to illustrate sort of what this looks like and some of the challenges? Yeah, I mean, it, it is really quite rare to catch a timber poacher, actually. And so there are a few cases in my book that I follow where they have, but it actually took me quite a while in my reporting process. I had to wait for those cases to come up because it's so unlikely for for rangers to find both like the crime scene and the crime victim and then the criminal. <laughs> um, so anyway, there's uh, there's one case in particular uh, that I follow that I think really uses all of the sort of interesting tactics um, that are required to to prosecute a timber poacher. Um, and that's the case of Derek Hughes. Uh, so he he lives in a town called Oric, which is we would call it a gateway community. It's right on the edge of Redwoods National Park. Um, and in 2018, um, you know, Danny, or sorry, Derek Hughes and um, 
a companion who remains unnamed were uh, were were presumed to be stealing from uh, Redwood Burl, um, and so Burl is a particular um, uh, sort of timber product. It it grows on trees, often in really big bulges, sometimes from the bottom of the tree, sometimes from you know up upwards. If you've ever seen a tree that has this big knobbly growth, it, it's it's bark on the outside, but on the inside, it's it's tree wood. Um, those are quite valuable. They're often cut off with a chainsaw, and they can be sold for artisan crafts or if they're big enough, like a redwood burl, you can sell them as a table. Um, so uh, Derek Hughes was in the woods in the national park, really not very far from the road. And, you know, he, he stole a burl uh, from Redwood. And, um, you know, in advance of, of this theft happening, the, the, the park service had, had sort of assumed or um, had kind of done some work around looking at high profile burls and trees that might be at risk of being poached. And they had hidden some, uh, some cameras in the trees nearby this burl, actually. So it was a little bit of a, of a lucky situation there. Um, and they, they caught who they thought was Derek Hughes, the outline of him on camera, bringing in his truck and then loading it up with, with burl and driving it out. And so even though they had him on, you know, in images doing that, it wasn't quite clear enough that it was him. So they started doing additional work and they really rely on, you know, local informant networks. Uh, for instance, they started asking around other people that they knew in this really small town, you know, who do you think did this? You know, um, it, we they were often entering into sort of uh, deals with informants, saying you know we might make this minor charge that you have go away if you're if you're willing to go on record, you know, giving us information on this. So um, it really kind of uh, snowballed into into a full case where they were you know they were applying for a search warrant for their, to to enter into Hughes's home and uh, which they eventually received and and when they went in they discovered you know. Um, quite a bit of burl, um, as well as, uh, you know, a, a, they found nearby a camera that they had installed in a tree that had been stolen. Um, and they also found drug paraphernalia and weapons. And, you know, it turned into quite a, quite a big case. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Yeah, sounds like it. And of course, yeah. <laughs> um, for listeners who want to know more, there's, of course, more detail about all of these things in the book yeah. itself, um, because it is quite complicated and mm -hmm. tricky to piece all these things together. Um, and I was wondering if you could tell us maybe about one of these 
tools used to try and um, track these kinds of things down or prosecute them. Um, because I must admit, in a book about um, thieving trees, I was not expecting DNA to turn oh. up <laughs> <laughs> yes. um, quite so prominently. So can you tell us about how DNA and sort of related technologies are mm. being used to investigate these kinds of thefts, protect trees? Yeah. Um, so there's actually two separate uh, research labs, both of them located in the state of Oregon, that um, that have developed sort of a, a DNA approach to identifying uh, timber that may have been poached. And and part of the reason for that is because if if law enforcement, for instance, is tipped off that you know a mill has. Uh, has purchased wood that might be illegal, but it's already been milled into planks, it can be really difficult to say, well, we know for sure that that's redwood. And we know for sure that that came from this stump that we've been looking for the wood from. So there was a real need to be able to, you know, use kind of more uh, uh, focused technology to, to look at the individual tree itself and to be able to try and match it to particular sites. And so actually very recently in the last year, the first um, the first tree poaching case uh, that kind of led to a guilty verdict uh, using DNA technology uh, went through the court system. And so um, the way that the way that that technology works is that, you know, you only need a very bit amount of or sorry, a very small amount of the tree itself. So it can be a shaving from the product. It can even be uh, sawdust found on the floor of a vehicle. Um, and there, there are a couple ways from there that you can extract DNA from it. Uh, but really what both of these, um, what both of these labs are trying to do is create databases so that when wood is seized or, you know, or even maybe when um, a, a poaching site is found, they can take a small sample from that wood, run it through their through their scientific processes and apply it to the database to see if there are any matches from previous cases. Um, and one of the one of the databases is actually holds so much DNA up and down the up and down the Pacific Northwest. They have teams of people that go out and sample trees over huge swaths of land so that they can identify within 10 kilometers where the where the sample that's being taken may have originally grown. And that is that is really big because it first of all it narrows it down to a really quite quite uh quite close sort of uh land area I suppose and you can say listen within 10 kilometers this probably was growing within a national park this probably was growing in a con conservation area and it makes the risk like really a lot higher, you know, and it, it makes the risk of being found guilty um, a lot more, a lot more imminent. Mm, fascinating. Yeah, it I was is. Not expecting that. <laughs> yeah. And I think, um, you know, I don't want to put words in anyone's mouth. I, you know, I don't know how much that's going to deter poachers um, because they're still, it's still quite unlikely to actually find the poaching site and to narrow, like, you you know, still to even find the site itself and the wood that came, that may have come from the site is you still need those two elements, but this mm. is now a complicating factor in that, in that crime. So. Mm. Also scientifically fascinating. 
Yeah, yeah, really interesting. I mean, one of the labs in in Oregon, it's it's a US fish and wildlife lab, but they, you know, they work really with a very broad international scope and for a while they had an employee that would that was going around the world um, to what are called xylaria, which are essentially wood libraries. And often these are collections that were made like in the seven, you know, 18th, 19th century of, you know, explorers going around the world and collecting plant specimens. And they still exist in the back rooms of a lot of museums and, and botanic gardens. And this employee was taking small shavings from these wood blocks and bringing them back and trying to categorize them so that some of the most highly traded wood in the world could could be identified um, as you know, using these collections, uh, which is really fascinating. I mean, you have the overlap there of like botanical history with scientific development now with with sort of underground criminal networks. It's it's quite fascinating. Mm, very much so. Um, yeah. But the book, helpfully, I think, doesn't just look at kind of the super high tech side um, with mm. the particular lab and, you know, park rangers who have to be up for a whole bunch of different kinds of work. Yeah. Um, you also look at sort of technology that can help more at the community level. So yeah. I was wondering if you could tell us about the role of GPS devices and drones. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I actually learned more about that when I was when I was doing work in Peru than when I was in kind of local or regional forests, which is I think quite notable. But um, there, you know, there are technologies that we have at our fingertips now that a lot of communities there, which, you know, they really struggle with, with poaching in much the same way, um, that they've utilized to do things like alert them to when a poaching is, a poaching activity is taking place. Uh, so there's a community in, in sort of the uh, Amazon region of Peru uh, that was really struggling with poaching um, through 2018. And what they did was they installed sound-activated GPS devices that would spring to life at the sound at the at the whir of a chainsaw, basically, and it would alert local wardens that were, you know, maybe they were living in the forest because they were forest wardens, but I mean they they can't have eyes on everywhere all at once. So it would alert them and they would be able to communicate with their local community and their local law enforcement um, as a way to try and catch the poachers while it was happening, because then you would have the proof of who did it and the tree that was being cut down and where. Um, at the same time, there's another community that, you know, their, their traditional territory, you know, are often really huge swaths of land. And uh, again, they, they could only have so much kind of warden presence, ranger presence on that, on that land. And so uh, they were using drones to, to fly over some of the kind of more <laughs> remote elements and, and bring that footage back. And they were you know, they were seeing within that footage huge areas of their of their traditional territory and their their protected forest being cut down by people that, you know, in some instances it were were kind of setting up whole camps in the wilderness and and building roads to to take the wood out. Um, and so that's that's kind of accessible technology that also means that communities are in charge of monitoring their own land. Mm. Yeah, that's a really important piece of this, um, mm -hmm. obviously, as well. Um, so given this, 
the kind of the challenges that you've outlined for us, but also some of the options that are increasingly available. Um, What, you know, where are, especially with the Pacific Northwest, where Mm. are we at now? Sort of what's the economic state, I suppose? I imagine the pandemics probably had an impact. Yeah, it it really did. I mean, I think around the world, we were hearing stories about like the cost of building materials going up. And there were there are a couple of notable cases here where people were like breaking into building supply stores and, and stealing lots of plywood. So there's that. There's also increased demand for firewood, like like I mentioned earlier. Um, so, you know, there's there's kind of notable um notable reports coming from law enforcement saying that, you know, there's, there's a lot of illegal firewood on the market. Um, the pandemic really sent wood prices in on a crazy roller coaster ride. And so there was a real, um, in, in British Columbia, where I'm from, there was a real sort of problem there where poaching was on the rise because wood was increasingly in demand and also very expensive and people were able to kind of maybe mill it into sort of rough materials and sell it for instance on Facebook marketplace for you know in their local community pretty quickly um at the same time we actually also in BC there were a number of park rangers that were redeployed to work along the border because our border to the United States was closed. And so there were fewer rangers in the forest looking for this crime at the same time. So it was kind of a, you know, a little bit of a double whammy. And there were some community forests even that were reporting at that time that just hundreds of trees were being taken from their land um, and, and poached. So. Not yeah. a great state of affairs, um, but no. thankfully, <laughs> no. <laughs> thankfully, at least I mean, from your book, we're aware of it. Yeah, I mean, it's. Uh, I think it's interesting because I think it gives us a glimpse into kind of broader social challenges, right? Mm-hmm. So when I see that, I think, you know, particularly with the firewood, I think it's really notable because the energy crisis is affecting everybody, particularly in Europe. And you, you know, you might see people poaching wood that otherwise wouldn't have before, but that are relying on wood for their heat now. Um, or you might, you might see f- folks capitalizing on that, and and maybe they they've always known how to how to chop wood, and they're seeing an opening in the market here. But in any case, you, you know, it's still fueled by cost of living and and poverty and these really big questions that we have of inequality. In the process of um, researching this book and obviously writing it, which, as you've already mentioned, kind of involved a lot of digging around and lots of conversations, yeah. Um, yeah. was there anything in particular that surprised you? I was surprised, pardon me, I was surprised at the openness of all the sources, including rangers and poachers and scientists, you know, this was something that in their world was really important that didn't always get attention like they thought it should, particularly because sometimes it can be seen or considered as a just a small property crime, right? Um, if you want to think about old growth trees that way, I mean, that that's not untrue. It's just kind of a very straightforward way of looking at it. Um, you know, so I think I was surprised at just how 
fervently people wanted to talk about this and how they thought that it needed to be written about. I was really thankful for that. Um, and just, I, I, I was not surprised at how open the communities that I visited were, you know, I, I believe that a lot of, there's a lot of under reporting and under writing on, on small rural areas and people are keen to talk and explain their, their reality. But I was just really heartened by it. It was, it was very, uh, very, uh, reassuring. Yeah. It's a very nice surprise. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for sharing that with us. Yeah, <laughs> Thank you. Um, especially reading. as well, especially as researchers, um, kind of the idea that sometimes people want to talk to you is. Oh yeah, yeah, and nice. I think you know there's there's always warnings around. Be careful how you approach people, or be careful that you're not taking advantage of them. I believe that's really important. At the same time, I don't think that should entirely stop us. Like I think it should guide us, but not stop us, because otherwise you might not, you know, you might be, we might be missing a voice, essentially. Well, I would be interested, and I think our listeners would be, um, to learn perhaps a little bit more about your voice, if I'm allowed one cheeky final question. Sure. (laughs) Um, This is a little bit mean, because the book has pretty much just come out, but... Oh, yeah. Is there anything you've got your eye on next? Yeah, well, you know, the final chapters of Tree Thieves really digs into community forests and uh, community land management. And I'm hoping that that's where my next project will take me is kind of looking at um, community buyout, uh, particularly in Scotland, actually, and and the power that that provides to smaller rural communities in sort of uh, ensuring that towns are are viable, that people don't have to commit crimes, for instance, where they live, um, because they are finding local economy there. Um, so I'm really interested in sort of questions of, I could go on and on about this, but I'm really interested in questions of sort of uh, managed degrowth and how local economies might actually play a bit more of a role moving forward um, in in sort of keeping communities knit together through the environment and and um, you know I think part of part of the lesson of the timber wars is for instance that no other industry could, effectively replaced to the same level what the timber industry was doing but at the same time a lot of communities were were just left behind like that you know there weren't a lot of opportunities for them to for instance own a mill or sustainably log from the national park if the national park needs it um and so i'm really interested in in how community economics might might be a solution to some of these problems okay well that sounds very cool so yeah if, if i don't becomes, know thanks <laughs> if that becomes a book we'll definitely have to have you back to tell us i would love all to. about that um, yeah but in the meantime while you are investigating that uh read listeners can read the book that we've been discussing which again is called tree thieves crime and survival in north america's woods out in 2022 from little brown um mm-hmm. Lindsay, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast oh thank you for having me it was a great conversation <laughs>